Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Another Paddock Pass podcast comes to you from the deserts of MotoGP race action during this summer break, but we still have some quality content in store for you as the clock ticks down to the British Grand Prix and round nine in just over two weeks. Dave and Neil have been on the prowl with a microphone, so we have some revealing chats with a 2020 world champion and what has been a tough introduction to life for HRC for Joan Mir, as well as the pretender to Pekka Bagnaia's throne in 2023, and how Marco Bezzecchi is adjusting to life as a title contender in just his second Premier Class season. We'll also have a few listener questions that we'll address. As always, I'm Adam Wheelat, and I've only just dried out from a torrid day at the 30th Goodwood Festival Speed, where I rode woefully equipped for the wild swing in English weather. A one hour and 30 minute trip on a 2023 Ducati Monster SP was only partially a joy on the way there, but it was a two and a half hour return. I mean, that reached a point where not a single inch of my body was dry. Um, the event was good, though. Uh, a massive occasion. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. David Emmett. Good to have you back on the podcast. You escaped for a few days on the bike and with your much better half. Uh, and you still need to get some content published by the sounds of things. Uh, yes, uh, yes, I've been uh, slacking. So, uh, and it's been actually been very good for me to be slacking. I've also been trying to sort of write some stuff, sort of some, some tangential sort of stuff, you know, some bike related, some completely non-bike related, just to um, uh, hone my craft, as it were. Um, but finding that a, a, it's fun but difficult and getting away was absolutely great we went down to uh, the, 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 the Limburg the southern part of Holland and uh, rode through Germany and uh, uh, did a little bit of cycling a little bit of a wander it was very pleasant uh, Neil Morrison I'm glad you're happy to escape some of the I wouldn't say monotony that's maybe a bit harsh some of the drudge perhaps of uh free practice in the Moto2 Moto3 categories on the commentary. Um, are you still melting in Barcelona, Neil? And are you any closer to booking your motorcycle test? Yes, I am. Not melting very much, Adam. It's like plus 30 degrees at the moment. Uh, it On the little forecast app, it says it actually feels like 43 degrees. So that gives you an indication of how hot it is. Uh, and yes, I am um, closer to booking my motorcycle test. Yes, I have got a medical test to do. Um, and then, yes, yeah, you'll be doing uh, some theory after that. So, yeah, hopefully sometime in August, um, I'll have some news for you. Some deadly temperatures there for an Irishman. My, my sympathies. I'm in the UK, uh, as I mentioned earlier, so it's slightly cooler here. Before we get to the interviews, guys, a few things to talk about. Firstly, a massive thanks to Renthal. As you heard at the top of the show, Renthal had a fine collection of accessories and key add-ons for your street bike. Get to Renthal.com when you're considering your next component upgrade. Secondly, Dave, um, we have a change in the race schedule and um, it's been coming. It has been coming. It's been interesting because it was, um, uh, I mean, Wilco Zielenberg told us, 
about the meeting that happened at Assen. Uh, there was a meeting with all of the teams. It was discussed to turn FP1 or P1 or uh, now there was, uh, with the change, it's completely confusing me. All of the acronyms are, compu- are confusing now. So, uh, anyway, the Friday morning practice, um, to make that untimed. I mean, it's not untimed. It is actually timed, but it won't count towards qualifying for Q2. Um, they didn't get that through at, at Assen. Um, uh, Ducati uh, blocked it. Um, then it, they've had another meeting. Apparently, well, according to uh, motorsport.com, they managed to persuade Ducati to make them uh, change their mind. It, it makes you wonder what how they did that. But, I mean... Frankly, Dorna, the FIM and Erta all really want to change it. Most of the factories wanted to change it. It's a change to the sporting regulations. And so it's a simple majority of the Grand Prix Commission. So, you know, the, the, the sport was there. They could have done it anyway. Probably what they did was, I mean, there, there was probably some kind of a bit of, you know, a bit of bargaining going on. We don't know what uh, Ducati got in return, but, um, yeah, it looks like, uh, we are not going. It looks like we've changed. Now what we've got is Friday is completely untimed, or it it doesn't count towards Q1. The only practice session now which counts towards uh, you know Q1 and Q2 uh, will be uh, the Friday afternoon session, which is now just labelled uh, practice. We now have a free practice one and a free practice two, and that's on uh, Friday and Saturday morning. Uh, during practice session is, is going to stay 60 minutes, uh, which will mean, you know, you get a bit of time to work on your tires and then uh, riders will start going for, uh, going to set a fast time. It takes a little bit of the pressure. I think that generally the feeling was that there was just too much pressure on the entire weekend. People were just, you know, uh, like flat out 100% right from, uh, basically as soon as the red light went out at the end of pit lane for the start of FP1. Um, and that was, it was just too stressful. People were running out of soft tires of their desired tires. They didn't feel like they had time to work on tire choice. The only time you can really do that is, is in the afternoon because they were also working on setup. So I think the point is going to be that we'll see that FP1, um, becomes the time when they work on setup. Uh, and once they've got a, like a base setup, then in the afternoon, they'll be able to work on, uh, on or focus a little bit more on tire choice before actually trying to get through to Q2, uh, and then FP2, it's you know refining your setup again. Because the thing is, you can only really start to think about your race tires when you're riding in very similar race conditions, uh, you know, temperature conditions, and that basically means you have to be you know doing riding and, and, and doing practice in, in the afternoon. Uh, there's no point in trying to work out how long the soft tire is going to work, is going to last um, when riding around at 10 o'clock in the morning when it's sort of, you know, 10, 10 degrees cooler than it's going to be in the afternoon. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a good change. I think it's, it is going to take a little bit of a, a pressure off of everyone. Um, I'm not sure it's going to make much difference to the outcome, but if if it just relieves a little bit of the strain, it's going to be it's going to be helpful. I think from a spectator's point of view, the timed P1 session, as it was before the summer break, didn't really ever make that much sense. Yes, it added a little bit of jeopardy, but even as a fan, if you if you're tuning in on a Friday morning, are you really tuning in for the last ten minutes, or should I? Do you sort of, from my point of view, you're tuning in just to see who's looking 
pretty sharp in terms of rhythm right from the off. And yeah, the jeopardy should be left until the afternoon. Um, I think the, the morning is basically kind of recapping what happened at the previous round, seeing what has happened in the, in the kind of the gap in between the races and what uh, was being said before the event. And, um, you know, as I said, seeing who's kind of got an early head start in terms of maybe rhythm on the, on the other guys. I don't think, yeah, it really ever made sense to have that big, uh, drama packed last five minutes of, uh, of P1. And, um, you know, obviously, as Dave mentioned, it was just, um, a bit too, uh, pressured for, for everyone, um, right from the, the get go of the weekend. So, um, yeah, I think it makes total sense to have, um, made it untimed as such. Yeah, I mean, the impression I got when I was uh, doing pit lane for Eurosport was that Friday morning, there weren't very many. Obviously, this was with the old schedule, but Friday morning, there weren't a lot of people paying attention. Friday afternoon, there was certainly a lot more um, uh, people paying attention because it started to matter, because it started to matter to go through. And I think you're going to see that accentuated. Friday afternoon is now really important. I think it's... And also, people have time on a Friday afternoon. You know, there's... Uh, plenty of people who can spare sort of half an hour or whatever uh, on a Friday afternoon to, to to watch the last 30 minutes of qualifying um, or the, the last of, of what is now called practice. Um, so, yeah, I think that uh, I think that's going to be good. I don't think there, there were a lot of people watching on Friday morning, apart from the absolute hardcore uh, people who really, really want to understand what's going to uh, going on, uh, and I think also it'll make it slightly more interesting for those sort of you know hardcore fans because you'll get to see a bit more of a structured um, uh, a structured practice session. You know, people actually working on setup. Also, guys, I mean, for the riders who said this season's been more intense or more demanding than ever, then this is a positive thing, right? I mean, this is likely to get a, a good reaction. I mean, you imagine they've also. Um, you know, been talking about it in the safety commission. Yeah, well, even you saw that Ducati opposed it originally um, when they had the meeting at Assen, but um, I think the majority of the Ducati riders actually favoured it. Um, Alicia Spargro was telling us that, I think on the Friday or the Saturday at Assen, that, um, you know, Banyaya, as well as a, a number of his fellow Ducati men were sort of in favour of, of scrapping the, the kind of the timed aspect or, or the fact that it counts to, to going into Q2. Um, so, yeah, you would say almost universally across the board, it seems as though this will be greeted with a thumbs up. Secondly, I think, you know, Neil, we're hearing more and more on a new subject, of course. We're hearing more and more solid whispers. And Steve has also had his ear to the ground in World Superbike about rider movements. Uh, Rather than anything drastic happening, it does seem that we could have a bit of a merry-go-round effect. It does seem that way, yeah. Um, There were definitely some rumours starting, I think, back at Assen, maybe the week after Assen, that um, Yamaha had been, you know, obviously their their options, their their. Uh, primary options were kind of um, closed. You know, Jorge Martin was sort of in their sights, but he decided to stay with Ducati. Marco Bezzecchi has no intentions to leave Ducati and with good reason. Um, and it seemed that they maybe had one eye on a few guys in Moto2 perhaps. Um, but it does seem as though it's going to be Alex Rins that will be leaving LCR Honda to move across to the factory Yamaha team next year. Um, Carlo Pernat was quoted in Speedweek, uh, the German publication, um, I, f- I think about a week ago, 
Carlo obviously being a, a rider manager of Pastianini, Tony Arbolino, was saying that um, pretty much it's a done deal for Rins and Yamaha. So that's a, certainly an interesting move. Um, one that you would feel uh, would, would, would suit Rins quite well, given his, uh, his riding characteristics. Um, also, a bit of a blow for Honda because Rins coming in there has been a, a big positive, despite the fact that he's recovering from a broken leg. His time there had been pretty positive before the crash. Um, one of the few bright spots of the uh, of the year for HRC, and he's already decided to go. And you could maybe look at um, the frustrations he had at um, not being given, um, or his input not being given the sort of uh, seriousness that it probably warrants. Um, you know, there was some frustrations back in Kota. I seem to remember that um, he wasn't being given uh, the latest chassis to to test. Um, and, you know, Honda's just in a real mire at the moment. Yamaha's in a mire as well, but maybe less so than Honda, you could say, at this particular time. So, And it's a factory team that he'll be stepping up to. So that's that's quite an interesting development. And then, um, yeah, Steve was doing a bit of digging around um, the Imola paddock, and it, he had heard, um, and it sounds as though... Um, maybe Johan Zarco could be going to uh, LCR to replace him. That also leaves questions around Marco Bezzecchi, Neil. Uh, that would be potentially a place at Pramac, which would allow the Italian to move sideways almost. I mean, that's kind of one big question. Why would Bezzecchi want to leave VR46, which has been such an effective home for him so far? And also, you know, it does seem surprising because if you look at LCR Honda, they've had pretty stable rider relationships. Cal Crutcher was there for a significant amount of years. Stefan Brado as well. Alex Marquez did a two-year tenure. Um, you know, we know Takanakagami's in sort of a, a splinter of that setup. Uh, just for instance, sort of jump out, you know, kind of, I know he's, like you said, he's injured. It does seem a little bit drastic. Um, but then again, you know, the characteristics of riding the Suzuki to the Yamaha would be beneficial. So, I mean, what, what do we think, guys? Would um, Is this Rins thing likely? And, and Bezeki, what, what would he stand to gain from going to Pramac compared to where he is now? Well, I mean, you know, a factory Ducati, that's what he'd stand to gain. Uh, obviously, the GP22 is good. The GP23 is, is better. Um, certainly, if you look at the championship standings, um, the differences are small. I think there is a, a risk um, with... The because the the thing is, you know, who would go with him from VR forty six to Pramac? Um, Ducati tried to keep the their uh, head, their the crew chief, and the data engineer and rider together as a trio because that is such a it's such a really important relationship. It, it it's that's that sort of communication circle really determines everything. Um, uh, but we also know that Matteo Flamini is, uh, I mean, you know, he was Valentino Rossi's, uh, crew, uh, the data engineer and he was, you know, absolutely a core part of the, of the VR46, uh, sort of concept sort of thing. So there's, there's, there's lots of question marks. Um, the, I mean, the reason you go to Pramac is because it's a route through to the factory. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's the route to the factory team because it also gives Ducati a slightly closer look at what you're doing. It, it also gives a better comparison of data between, you know, the factory riders and, um, uh, and the, and the product team because everyone's on the same bike. You can't look at two sets of data and say, well, you know, this might be the bike. It might be the rider. It's much clearly about, okay, you know, 
the, it's the rider making the difference here. Um, but Bastianini Day proved that it's not essential. You don't need to be in the Pramac sort of channel, if you like. We, but but we, we don't really... The thing about, about Bastianini is, you know, he was hurt at the first race, so we've got no idea what he's like on the GP23, to be perfectly frank, because he's barely started, you know, riding it fit. So, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see what difference it makes until the second half of the season. And we're guess, talking about Bezeki. Oh, well, sorry, yeah. Sorry, go on now. I was just going to say that I guess you could say maybe um, if Bezeki, if Zarko does leave Pramac, Bezeki steps up, then this would be a chance, and Rins is going to Yamaha, then this would be the chance for Franco Morbidelli to uh, move across to the VR46 team uh, in Ducati. So it could almost be like a little circle of, of riders just moving across. Um, none of those four. Uh, leaving GP, um, all of them just kind of getting a, a new seat. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. But, I, you know, all, all of the moves would kind of make sense. Obviously, with Zarco, you would fear somewhat considering Honda's current situation. But he did have a couple of rides on the LCR Honda at the end of 2019 and ended up doing pretty respectable jobs. I think when he was at Sepang and then um, at uh, Valencia, his two rides for the team, deputising for Crutzlow when he was injured. So... That was the year, of course, that uh, Mark Marquez um, finished either first or second every single time on that bike. So um, uh, you could make a case that the Honda was a little bit better in 2019 than it is in 2023. Just a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, also, I'm, I'm, I'll be quite curious to see Franco Morbidelli on a Ducati. I mean, we know um, the attitude of this guy. We know his capabilities and his style. It would be a really cool link-up, actually, to see. Um, but speaking about Bezeki, uh, Neil, I mean, he's a quiet guy, uh, undoubtedly brilliant. In fact, at Goodwood, um, Casey Stoner held a pretty lengthy debrief with a couple of journalists, and um, he was talking about Marco and just saying, if MotoGP ever entered a phase again where they ripped off half of the electronics, I mean, it's never going to happen. But um, if it did, then Bezeki and his ability to feel and curate the life of a tyre would mark him as one of the fastest in the class. That's what Stoner had to say. So, um, you know, he's, he's definitely making the difference this year. Uh, you had a chance to speak to him. He, There is a feeling he could be the next sort of superstar to come through, but does he really have that personality to become the sort of dynamic mega face of MotoGP? Uh, I'm not sure if he has the personality yet. He, do, he does have a, a personality for sure. Um, I think he's got quite a, a wry sense of humour, a dry wit. also don't think he suffers fools. Um, you know, it can be interesting sometimes to be his debriefs because he can give you a bit of short shrift. If you ask a stupid question, he's going to make you very aware that uh, that you've done that. Um, I think he, he is quite... Uh, He's quite a funny guy, but it's, you know, he is still very young. Um, his English is good, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's it's absolutely amazing. So, you know, I think these are things that you sort of get a bit more comfortable with um, the, the sort of the, the time that you're in the spotlight as that um, progresses. So um, I think he could be, um, he could be a guy that could be a face of, of MotoGP in the future. Um, I had the pleasure to speak with him um, on the Thursday at Mugello, just before the Italian Grand Prix. He was still fresh from his win in uh, Le Mans when I spoke to him and he had just shaved off his moustache um, before uh, I, I greeted him. Um, and yeah, we spoke about a couple of different things, you know, how VR46 has made itself one of the most successful teams in MotoGP in just his second year, um, how he links up with his team, um, a few things about the academy. I was always really um, intrigued 
you know, the, the academy, they, they all say that they're all great mates and stuff, but considering they're all guys fighting for race wins in MotoGP, surely there's occasions where they're maybe going to clash. So I asked him a little bit about that and just a few things about um, about the rest of the season and, and then next year. But he was a little bit coy on that. But anyway, it was uh, it was still quite an interesting chat. And um, yeah, Michelle might not have gone to plan, but he certainly ended the first part of the season um, in a really strong way at, uh, at Assen. And yeah, is still kind of part of the, the title fight, you would say. Here's the interview. Uh, we'll then take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Uh, so Marco, we're here in Mugello, and uh, you don't have a moustache. I guess that's a that's a relief for you, no? Yeah, I'm very happy for this because uh, I was very nervous to arrive here uh, uh, still with the moustache on, but fortunately, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess we arrive in Mugello. You're one point away from the championship leads. You've won two races from five rounds so far this year. It's been a good start. Is this where you expected to be? During the preseason, were you expecting a start like this? Well, uh, honestly, no. Uh, well, I, I mean, I expected to be fast, of course, but um, not to be uh, winning two races. Uh, honestly, I, my target was, uh, of course, to win a race this year, but um, it came uh, earlier than than I than I expected. Anyway, I'm happy because I knew I could uh, I could uh, fight for this. Absolutely. Last year we saw that you were very fast, qualified well in certain occasions. Maybe the first lap of the race was was difficult for you, but it seems you've made a big improvement in that respect in 2023. Uh, What's behind this change? Is it more experience just or have you changed your kind of approach to be more aggressive? Well, uh, the experience, of course, always help uh, because... um in the in the MotoGP grid, there are a lot of riders with a lot of experience. So getting more of this is uh, is, is of course helping me. And um, and then also knowing more the bike is uh, fantastic because I I have more confidence on the bike and I can be more uh, not aggressive but um, with more decision uh, in the beginning and also in the end of the race. So this uh, was a big change. Um, I read an interview with your crew chief uh, recently and he said that in the first year you were almost riding on instinct, whereas now you're a lot more considered, you're able to think about things more. Would you say that that is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, quite true. Uh, I mean, of course, uh, I still have that uh, part of instinct that uh, I need to go fast. But uh, having, as I said before, gaining more experience, then uh, now I can... Uh, manage better uh, when I ride and uh, during races or qualifying or anyway any kind of session I can manage a little bit better myself my riding style and everything and I also read in an interview with you I think after Argentina um, you were saying that sometimes when Valentino was giving you advice before a race weekend he can be quite uh, straight quite direct with you I think maybe this was the case before Argentina he was telling you to to go out and, and take your opportunity is this is this kind of how he um, he interacts with you yeah he he have a lot of experience he is able to give us uh, a lot of advices and his way to to tell me uh, something is uh, always very clear he go direct to the point where he, he wants to arrive and uh, I like this way because uh, I'm uh, also like this so 
for me is very is more easy to understand and to to learn from these advices and uh, for me is a very good approach uh, i really like yeah, i guess this is uh when it's clearer you're able to understand yeah. it easier and quicker and yeah it's always uh, it's always better when it's uh, more direct yeah. more clear or oh, sometimes hurts depends <laughs> But uh, at the end, uh, he, he do this for uh, for for me, for uh, for my um, to see me in a better way. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, I know that you've been asked this question a lot. That um, there's maybe some rivalry between the academy guys, and you've said that you're good friends and there's a great relationship between you. But I wonder, is there is there ever moments when things get a little bit uh, a little bit heated or a little bit hot between you? Because at the end of the day, you're racing for important things in the MotoGP World Championship. Uh, is it always uh, very calm and serene? Well, uh, honestly, no. It's normal to have sometimes uh, some hard moments, but uh, honestly, more uh, at home, in the, in the training, in the ranch or in the gym. Uh, sometimes we discuss or we we get uh, some arguments, but uh, at the end uh, now we are uh, uh, men, so uh, we have to understand that uh, uh, we have to try to live together in a good way. So honestly, at the races is uh, more easy compared uh, compared to, but uh, yeah, is. Uh, Sometimes, obviously, can happen. is uh, is normal for uh, for every kind of relationship to have hard moments. In a relationship like our one, uh, fighting for the same target and being together every day is uh, is difficult. But uh, we manage very well. Um, I'd like to ask about your relationship with your crew chief, Matteo, a guy obviously with uh, tremendous experience um, going right the way back to the 90s. Um, I read that he doesn't like to panic. Everything needs to be calm in the garage. Um, what's that relationship like and can you feel this this calm when you're working with him? Yeah, he's, uh, he is a fantastic guy, first of all, because uh, we are very cr- close friends uh, besides uh, the relationship uh, rider crew chief so i feel uh, that the the ambient the mood in the in the box is fantastic uh, because uh, he is very calm and um, he always keep the the team calm also in the difficult moments also he keep me calm many times because i sometimes i get a little bit nervous obviously uh, so yeah i feel a lot this um, this kind of feelings that he uh, gives to the team and uh, is fantastic. I have also to say that not only Matteo makes this, but also Ucho is uh, very, very good to keep uh, the relationship uh, and the mood in the box uh, in a fantastic way. Also Pablo, everyone that's working uh, beside the bike, not on the bike, but uh, Ucho, Pablo, uh, Matteo, of course, and all the team is uh, very good on this. I guess it, it must be so important for a rider to have that sort of feeling of familiarity and, and calm so you can focus on focus on the job. Yeah, well, uh, with my team, honestly, I have uh, such a good relationship because we are together since uh, many years uh, with my mechanics and my, my data guy. Matteo is new, but this is the second year together and we, we, we are 
really friends. So uh, sometimes uh, me and my mechanics, we go out together. We, we go to dinner, we see with the Italian, of course, because the Spanish are uh, too far. But uh, we see each other also outside races. We speak about uh, everything else. With Matteo, the same. I know his family and we have... Um, a very good relationship and this uh, for me is uh, very uh, important to to have i know some riders have different approaches with um, the setup of the bike some like to just leave the garage after a session and, and not think about it but others like to spend some time looking at the data and talking with their mechanics and their technicians are you someone like that that spends a lot of time looking at the data and trying to understand the kind of the what's happening with the bike beneath you yeah of course i try to work a lot on the box to um, improve uh, the riding and not only the setting because at the end uh, the setting of course is helping but uh, the riding even more so i try to study a lot how to improve myself how to ride better and i like also to stay on the box just to stay with them i prefer to stay on the box uh, compare uh, alone in the motorhome so honestly i i spend all the day inside the box uh, only when i have to go to the toilet i go to the motorhome <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i guess that's a good way to cultivate good relations right a good atmosphere with the team yeah it's good also because um, we speak also not only about bikes so uh, we work of course during the weekend even more uh, the bike is on this on the center of the of everything but then uh, when um, when uh, in the evening the job is done and uh, we stay anyway in the box I stay with the mechanics I look at the bike I like to look the mechanical side I like to chat a little with, bit with all the guys and we stay together uh, all the time and just going back to the past Marco um, back to when you were a small guy a small kid your girlfriend's cousin I think had a very important role in you joining the academy can you maybe tell us a little bit about that yeah um, my my cousin uh, have this girlfriend that uh, is from Pesaro and uh, she broke her knee and uh, she started to go to make physio in the in the gym where uh, Carlo work which is uh, our uh, trainer so she started to bother him, uh, saying, uh, "My cousin is good. Is uh, a good rider. He's growing up. You have to go to see him." And uh, finally, he listened to, to her, and he bring all, also all the other guys from the VR46. He spoke with Vale, and they came to see me, and they, we know each other. And from that moment, start our relationship. We keep in touch until uh, I finally got uh, signed into the into the VR46 so it was a crazy story but uh, I was very lucky <laughs> and can you remember the time when they came to watch you and you were I guess you were riding mini bikes at the time no it was, no? Uh, was uh, in the Italian championship in Moto3 so 2015 uh, I was uh, winning the championship in that uh, in the time and I was a Mahindra rider um, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, was difficult because, you know, it's a sport that uh, is difficult uh, to arrive to the top. Uh, all the family have to make sacrifices. So for me, honestly, without them, it was almost impossible to, to arrive in, to the World Championship. 
So yeah, I had uh, this big luck to meet them, and then when I when I had a wild card here. I spoke with Vale for the first time and uh, he, uh, they invite me to the ranch uh, and then from that moment uh, everything started. Looking at your career in Grand Prix Marco and Moto3, Moto2, MotoGP, there's always been a kind of clear progression but I guess the one year, the exception was maybe 2019, your first year in Moto2 when obviously it was a difficult year with KTM chassis and things just didn't go well. Some riders say that you learn more in the, the really difficult moments than you do in the, the good moments. I mean, wh what can you tell us about that year and what did you learn from that? From 2019? Right. Yeah, it was a difficult season for me because uh, the bike was not too bad, but um, some other riders could go fast, but honestly I didn't find myself uh, very, very well and I was, wasn't was able to ride uh, to ride fast, to, to try to, to be fast. In the end of the season I could improve, but anyway, something was always wrong. Uh, once they make me crash, uh, once the bike uh, was broken and then uh, I, I couldn't go fast anyway. So it was a, a mix of uh, feelings during that season. Of course, the team was fantastic because honestly I had a very good relationship with them. I, I still see I still see them and they are uh, very happy to see me and I am also I go to the box sometimes and with Hervé the same I I I was a shame for me because I wanted to ride well but um, in that period of uh, of my life I was uh, really sad but um, I anyway tried to don't give up because my passion was more than uh, than uh, the the hard moment that I was living so fortunately with the people around uh, by the academy by my family I was uh, having a lot of help to to stay positive to try to come back and uh, I think that I learned a lot by by riding to try to adapt to try to change a lot of things during during the year to be more uh, uh, yeah more um, adaptive to everything that I can uh, reach, uh, that I can uh, find on my way and uh, by, by personality just to really don't give up, really fight and never, uh, never give up, never give up. Um, just two more questions Marco, um, the first one is how are you approaching the rest of this year? I know it, during the preseason the aim was to get your first win now you've got two wins are you just I know riders say they take it race by race but must feel like you have a, a chance to have a, a really good championship position this year yeah well the chance of course uh, is there because at the end until now I'm I'm close but honestly it's a little bit too early to, to think about it uh, I prefer to arrive to a point of the season thinking always race by race weekend by weekend because now in a weekend there are two races so weekend by weekend uh, also to continue to improve bec because there are some tracks where maybe last year I struggled more uh, some where I struggle less so the target is to be constant constantly improving and trying to be fast uh, every time um, and then uh, if uh, I can be in the same position that I am now uh, close, more close to the end of the season of course it's normal to think about it it's, uh, it's normal but for the moment I don't want to stress myself too much 
And just finally, um, obviously your name is being linked to certain teams, certain manufacturers at the moment. Can you say anything about, you know, would your desire be to, to stay with Ducati for 2024? Um, have you had talks about this? Um, what, what was the kind of situation like? Yeah, we didn't talk uh, for the moment, but uh, I feel very good where I am now. So I, I hope that uh, everything stays like this. Renthal street chain and sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back, everybody. On to our second interview of the podcast. Uh, Dave, you sat down with Joanne Mir. Um, do we need to apply like an advisory certificate to this one? Are we, you know, if people are quite feeling quite happy and mellow after the Bears interview, do we need to pass maybe on the warn, uh, pa- pass yeah, on the Samaritan's uh, phone uh, phone number or something? Um, yeah, no, no. Honestly, he was um, he was very open, um, very honest. Um, uh, uh, cheerful is perhaps the wrong word, but he was, you know, he was not at all. Um, he was very honest about what was happening, but he wasn't sort of depressed about it. Um, it was a little bit ironic that we, uh, you know, we, we talked about crashing and, and how you get through a crash. And then, uh, I think a couple sort of on the Saturday, I believe, uh, I think during qualifying, he crashed and, um, injured his right hand and that made him basically pull out of the next three races. Uh, so yeah, I felt a bit, I felt a bit guilty about that, but he was very interesting, very revealing about, um, the kind of mental strength needed to, uh, to, to persist and also about the way that, um, uh, the, the way that the, the Honda was to ride. I'm slightly scared, Dave, that uh, no MotoGP riders or any riders, in fact, are going to want to speak to you for the Planet Pass <laughs> podcast after this, considering the kind of effect that this has had in Juan's per season. Uh, well, yes. I mean, to be fair, I think uh, I can uh, get away with it, uh, given the given the number of riders who are uh, Honda riders who are currently injured um, or recovering from injury. I think I can safely claim that this one uh, isn't necessarily down to me. No, it's been tough being at his debriefs this year, hasn't it? I mean, Joan Mir has just been on the ascendancy pretty much every step of the way in his, his quite short MotoGP career still. Uh, but, you know, like Jorge Lorenzo briefly before him, also like Paula Spargaro, there has been this kind of demeanour that he really knows he's up against his circumstances and there's not a great deal of change that he, or there's not much he can bring to the package to, to turn things around. No, no, there, there is that sense. I think there's also the, the kind of worrying sense that when he has been crashing out, it's been when he's been in 14th, 15th place, you know, um, at least Mark's season has been desperate, but there has been the small crumb of comfort that generally when he has crashed, he's been fighting for the podium or he's been there or thereabouts, you think, to uh, Portugal, Le Mans, Mugello. Um, you know, he was in competitive positions when he did fall out of those races. But with Mir, he's been just so far back. Um, and yeah, I, I went to his debrief, I think, at the end of the, the, sorry, the French Grand Prix. I was the only English-speaking journalist there, I think. Maybe there's one other person there. Um, and yeah, he was, he was really down, like really, really down. And he was just saying that the bike's so difficult to ride that you can maybe get a decent spell of two or three laps on it. But... The fact that it's so difficult to ride and so critical um, 
over a race long distance, then it's just more or less impossible not to make a, a mistake that will lead to a crash in that time. So, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, having essentially a month and a half away um, from from the track and from the bike, you know, he can come back at Silverstone fully recovered physically and, and I imagine mentally as well after having a bit of a break and maybe start to show something. But, um, you know, there's going to need to be some fairly major changes to the Honda um, for him to be shown anything like near his potential. That is something which which Joan uh, actually talks about in the interview. Um, uh, uh, like I say, about trying to find the limit on the on the Honda and how difficult that is, and uh, you know, every time you try something, you seem to crash. Yeah, it's not just Mark Marquez that we're focusing on really in his future with Honda. I mean, Joan Mir as well is you know, let's not forget sort of one of three world champions in the last sort of, you know, since 2020. So it's, um, you know, he has a profile and I think it's a very valid question about over his future and what happens with HRC as well. So here, Dave, is your chat with Joan Mir. Enjoy it, guys. I'm here with uh, Joan Mir of Repsol Honda. Um, always a pleasure to talk to you, Joan. Uh, My pleasure. I have to start what were your expectations when you signed for Repsol Honda? Because on the one hand, it's the biggest team in racing. It's the biggest, most important Spanish team in racing because of the link with Repsol. But we've also seen um, how difficult it is for teammates. You know, yeah. we saw Jorge Lorenzo, one of the greatest MotoGP riders, uh, come in and only last a season. So what were your expectations? Uh, well, uh, of course, when when you come to to this team with these colors, uh, you know that uh, nothing but win is a good result. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and uh, always the expectations here are, are very high. It's true that now probably a little bit less because uh, after many years uh, they are not crossing their best moment, and uh, we arrive uh, on, on on that moment uh, is uh, I think. It's a matter of time that the team like this one find a bit the way of what uh, of what uh, you need to be to be fast and uh, and we are a bit in there in the middle. Mm. So uh, at the moment is 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 difficult because uh, I don't feel great on the bike. I'm not enjoying and this is a a reality. Uh, but. Uh, but I have hopes that this situation can only change in the, in a team like this one. You've been behind Hondas last year for the, for many years, so you must have had an idea of what the bike was doing well and what it wasn't doing well. But how did it? How was it different from your expectations when you finally got to ride it? When I was behind them in um, in, in when I exploded really in in MotoGP was uh, was one moment that um, the Ondas was not uh, was not winning. So I, I I I didn't see the bike as a huge potential when I came here. You know, it's not that I, there was one area that I said to you. Well, looks very good here because was not I, I didn't have the opportunity to fight with Mark in his best yeah. moment uh, on on with the Suzuki, no? And uh, and and this and this is true. But uh, but you, and and when I came here, uh, the the reality was that was a difficult bike. Uh, on the outside, I could see that uh, after before coming here, there was a lot of crashes yeah. on every every rider. 
and uh, and at the moment I'm, I'm having that uh, crashes and I, and I'm on on that process of uh, learning uh, with uh, on on this bike that that you need to to crash to crash to be to be fast and and this is this is uh, a reality at the moment no how hard is that mentally very hard because crashes hurt right even for MotoGP riders crashes hurt yeah and uh, every crash um, is uh, like uh, have uh, your mind have memory always, yes no <laughs> and I even even if story. even if we, you forget when you are on the bike because uh, i completely forget uh, then when you are out of the bike you always mm. remember you know that, that you have uh, you know every crash that you have uh, you remember perfectly no and uh, yeah unconsciously it's always uh, uh, there and uh, you you can forget but uh but it's true that at the moment when i'm on the bike that is the most important thing i forget about mm. so the day that uh, i will not forget i will be worried what do you learn from a crash uh, the crash the 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 bad crashes that um i i i hate completely is the the um, the ones that you don't know why mm. no and this season, I have I had a lot of that one. Yeah, the bike is working, and then all of a sudden you're in the gravel. Yeah, and uh, the bike more or less is working. You are not super super fast, but you are more or less there uh, riding. And when you try something more, something different, something pump. Yeah, and uh, you you don't see the the where the the light inside out of the yeah. tunnel because yeah. you see you say if i try something different i crash and uh, i have to do something different because if not i'm i'm slow so uh, at the moment i'm on on that moment you know that is very 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 tough how do, how do you motivate yourself being uh, now three weeks at home um training uh, that is my therapy because uh, i I love uh, to train uh, with with all all kind of bikes uh, to to go with with the bicycle to to push myself. This is my therapy, no? Mm. Probably if I didn't have this, I I should uh, I I I should stop probably quite years ago because uh, the stress in the MotoGP weekend is very high always. So punishing yourself physically is a way of just working through things. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Uh, this is your fifth season. We were talking about this before. This is your fifth season in MotoGP. Um, I don't think I've been doing this for since two thousand and eight. So, what's that, 15 years? Um, I don't think I've ever seen so much change in such a short period. Um, the bikes are very different. And now this year, of course, we've also got the sprint races, which has completely changed things. How do you see that? How do you see where MotoGP is at the moment with the bikes, with the races, with the rest of it? Well, I see a lot of competitiveness. I see that uh, the bikes are, in general, easier to drive from when I arrived in 2019 I see a lot of helps on the on the riding like is the devices I see that it's very difficult to make some difference on the starts if you don't have a good bike before you had to play you have to be focused with the clutch and everything and and now every time is just machinery it's just to have the package to go you see that the if the ondas are starting well every onda will start well if uh, the ktms are starting bad uh, every ktm will start bad so is a little bit more now the machine than than before and uh, i see a lot more races a lot more competitiveness every rider uh 
like uh, you you don't understand really who is the good one and who is the bad one <laughs> is that because the level of the riders has raised up or or because the bikes have become the the bike has more become more important the the level for sure is is uh, higher of everyone but even if everyone the level is is higher and they train good as every sport uh, some ones are better than other yeah. ones <laughs> you know and uh, and now and and now is uh, is very is very important the bike uh, a little bit more than a three or four years ago this this is it's like this so uh, to make difference if you don't have the correct bike now is very tough and uh, and uh, mod- I, I see MotoGP a little bit like this before I remember that uh, we we had four riders. Uh, if you don't, if you were not a fan of one, you were a fan of another one. And uh, now I see that uh, there are. I, I, when I see the fans, I see the fans of MotoGP, not of one rider. Uh, not not everyone, eh? But you know what yeah. I mean, no? Exactly. That uh, they love the sport. They're not. They're, they're not um, because it used to be, you know. Valentino Rossi or exactly. Casey Stoner or Jorge now Lorenzo. of course Mark can uh, have a lot of uh, followers but it's not like before no exactly yeah yeah a lot of people are MotoGP fans if there was one thing how would you like to change the bikes less traction control and more rock and roll no <laughs> <laughs> no but I mean would you take the devices off would you yes. take the aerodynamics yes. off I, I, I would the the the, the, um, the traction no As, uh, just uh, the, these bikes needs a lot of electronics to work well um, uh, I think that the electronics are a bit too much uh, the sorry the, the aerodynamics are a bit too much um, the um, that I will start with that any help on the start on the of, of devices and stories, I will remove it, and uh, and like this, it will be more easy to overtake. Yeah. If you have a, a bad qualifying, you you can have the the, the chance to to make a, a good start and to 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 make some some rows. And uh, I will start with that. Then uh, what what um, they make of every every bike that is uh, the the level of the bikes are are very good. The satellite bikes are also quite like factory so this is probably same for, for me that uh, you give a chance of the for the people uh, uh, with a private team this is not is not uh, is not bad but yeah the, the thing of the of the of their dynamics is clear the first thing that I will do more than the uh, um, more than the ride height devices yeah, for me it's together yeah 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 is a, a pack yeah aerodynamics and device yeah and that, because I remember also Suzuki at some point they were struggling and then you got the device yes. and you immediately made a big step forward and, it, and it's a that way you saw how much of a difference it made sort of thing. Yeah, uh, I I remember when we started with that things the first you try one in the middle of a, yeah. of a weekend that in, in the Japanese people didn't always want to try and recheck and make a lot yeah. of kilometers so they put it on the bike directly and uh, you try on the first braking be careful <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah that uh, i could uh, feel the difference with and without and uh, it's only a help in terms of acceleration you arrive faster into the other corner but in terms of um, show in terms of uh, riding and everything is not better no exactly okay thank you very much sean <laughs> David, it's a pleasure always. 
We also asked you if you had any questions for us on the Paddock Pass podcast, so we've lined up a few. Uh, Just Jono asked in response to RNF Aprilia team managers Wilco Zielenberg's comments in our RNF Unlock podcast whether teams and brands could have more test riders lapping on Fridays at Grand Prix. Um, related to this, Flip B asked why there are not more official tests. Uh, Dave, your thoughts? Uh, well, the answer is very simple: money. Um, it costs money, and there isn't uh, there isn't a lot of it. I mean, the problem is that we need. I mean, like everyone would need a a, a test rider, and who they're going to be working for? Are they only going to be working for the factories, or are they going to be working for all of the teams? Is a team going to employ a test rider as well? Um, th- th- there's so many complicated things because it's not just you know having a test rider uh you've got to pay the test rider a salary you've got to pay all of his travel expenses or all of their travel expenses um everything involved you've got to try uh, uh, you've got to pay for a team to put around them um then there's you know 20 grand's worth of of crash damage every time they they have a small slide into the uh, into the gravel it becomes very very expensive very very quickly um the testing thing is is simply the compromise which they have found that Dorna have found with Erta with the teams which is the teams don't get paid for testing they only get paid for racing um uh, you know basically Dorna covers all of their expenses for uh, for testing or for for racing rather and none for testing they have to finance testing completely out of their own pocket and so uh you know the more they race the more money they make and the and the more they test the the the, the more it costs i i do get the sense that the, they feel that the pendulum swung a little bit too far. You know, we've lost, we've only got the two in-season tests. We're going to have one more next year. Um, and I think we're starting to see the, the disadvantage, especially with Yamaha and Honda, you know, not being, not being able to catch up. Um, although Yamaha and Honda, you know, it, it's much more of a, the mentality within the factory, which is holding them back, but also not having, as much testing time is also is also an issue, but in the end, it just boils down to money. Gary Shavit, uh, thanks for the nice comments. By the way, asked if Alberto Pud should be worried about his future at HRC. Um, I would say he would be worried about HRC's future in MotoGP, um, not necessarily his own future. Although, if HRC did pull the plug on, on MotoGP, then that would affect his future, obviously. Um, but I kind of I get his question. I don't think I certainly don't think Alberto Puig is the problem at Honda at the moment. I think the the main problem is a couple of rings on the chain above Alberto Puig currently. Um, you know, some things that we heard towards the end of the first part of the season were pointing to Alberto being pretty proactive with some changes he was trying to make. Um, you know, I think Alberto has been one of the people in Honda pushing for them to use outside um, contributors, manufacturers to try and help them turn the situation around, like Calix with the swing on with the chassis. Um, you know, I think he was pushing to get a couple of new people from aerodynamic or from the aerodynamic side into the project only to be rebuffed by people back in Japan. Um, I get the impression that the problem is coming from the technical department in Japan and how they're not really able to take on board what the the kind of the racing team is saying uh, racing teams continual complaints they aren't able to take those on board to implement any kind of sort of plan of action 
Um, and the, the issue sort of rests there. Um, I actually feel quite sorry for Alberto. You know, that Honda was having a horrible weekend in Germany when Mark crashed five times. They only had, uh, what, one rider line up for the race on Sunday. And I think Alberto Puig was, um, at that time, not at the track because his, uh, his dad was dying. I think his dad died the day after the, the German Grand Prix. So it's been a really tough time for him professionally and privately as well. Um, and yeah, speak to people within Honda and, you know, Puj is certainly not one of the names that comes up as a, as a reason for this predicament that they find themselves in. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the, that's the funny thing. A lot of people, when you do talk to people in Honda, they all seem to love him. Um, I, I think also he has the misfortune of being the public face of Honda. Uh, you know, like he's the one that Simon Crafar is interviewing also because, you know, he speaks English and is fluent in English and that's the role of a team manager. Whereas, you know, the, the, the people who, who are the problem are, you know, the, the HR, the Japanese HR Steve star, staff, you know, Kuwata-san who's overlooking this. Um, it, it, it's his job to get this, to get this sorted, to fix this, to actually change the way that Honda work. Um, but Kuwata-san doesn't do so many interviews and his English isn't as good. And so, uh, like I say, uh, Alberto Pooch has the misfortune to be the public face, so he's the one who gets the flack. Yeah, that public face means he could be the scapegoat, ultimately, Dave. Um, I think, you know, it's going to be a key sort of six months ahead for Honda and what they can bring to the, the end of year tests. But, um, Neil, coming back to you, at Moto Timing asks, could KTM still surprise us this season, potentially with something around the Misano test and maybe launch a title bid? Um, yeah, it's possible. I mean, uh, Brad Binder finds himself, what, 80 points back of, um, of Pekka Banya in the championship. Um, you know, he had a couple of really, really strong perform- uh, performances in the first half of the season. Um, maybe hasn't quite lived up to some of those early sprints that we saw where he won the race in Argentina, where he won the race in Jerez, the sprint race. Um, you know, he's had a, one or two small mistakes where he's just been pushing a little bit too hard, trying to keep up with the Ducatis ahead. He crashed out in Germany. Obviously, those two minor, minor, minor mistakes in the Netherlands cost him podiums in both the sprint and the full feature length races. I would say Ducati's in such a position of strength at the moment that it's really difficult to see anyone um, overturn them in the championship. However, when you have looked at KTM's progression in the last couple of years, they have tended to get stronger as the season's gone on. Uh, you certainly look at last year and Brad, when we got to the flyaways, was a real force, had a couple of really strong performances and rides in Japan um, at the end of the year in Valencia as well. Um, we spoke about this, I think, in a Patreon show ad after the, the French Grand Prix when we had that three-week break. We were talking of talking about whether Brad is a is a title contender this year. And I just think that 2023 is a year too early for KTM. I do definitely foresee them and Brad challenging for the championship, but not necessarily this year. I just think this is, is one year too early. I think Ducati's uh, advantage over the rest of the field at the moment is just currently too big. And I can't see anyone beyond the sort of triumvirate of... Um, Opanyaya, Martin, or Bezeki um, challenge for the title this year. I would uh, just like to point out that uh, although Francesco Bagnaia has 194 points, there are still 444 points up for grabs. Uh, I think this is something we keep ra- uh, r- r- sort of forgetting that there are 37 ra- uh, points on offer at each round. And also, um, there are still 12 rounds left, which is a lot. You would also think um, maybe the most pertinent issue around KTM at the moment is also their 2024 lineup. Um, you know, what is going to happen with Pedro Acosta? I think that's probably the next 
press big press release that people are anticipating. But um, Dave, um, last question coming back to you. Corey Steele asks, why not change the rules to allow the tyre pressure to be regulated during the race, um, either through an accumulator or for a pressure release valve? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any re- there's, there isn't a technical reason. I mean, adding an accumulator and re- release valves would add a little bit of weight. Um, and especially it's both unsprung and it's rotating, which is what exactly what you don't want uh, with uh, with weight. However, um, I think the, the real reason that we don't have it at the moment is just because of cost. You know, uh, the, the whole point of the rules is to try to restrict the uh, role of electronics because this would need to be uh, controlled electronically. You couldn't, the, the, it would be almost impossible uh, to control uh, through uh, some kind of hydraulic system or mechanical system. Um, it would be done electronically. They're trying to, re- or certainly when the rules were written, the idea was to restrict the role of, uh, of electronics as much as possible to restrict the, the you know, the, the, the possibility of cost, uh, to try to manage cost. It would be one solution. But I mean, the thing is, in 2025, we're getting a new fridge, a new Michelin front tire. That should make a difference. You're seeing the difference. You're also seeing a difference in um, in wheel design, uh, where they are trying to create more volume in the wheel rim itself, um, because you know the more air volume they have, the the less the pr- the, the the pressure fluctuates with the, with temperature. Uh, so the, you know they're exploring a few the, a, a few options, and it would be an unnecessary and expensive change for what they hope is only going to be a problem for another year. Cold hard cash. There you go. The answer to every single question in in most areas of lives is either one money or two logistics, um, and uh, that will that will answer most of your questions. Once you once you start to analyze the root cause of a lot of things, it's like oh well, either a it costs too much or b it just takes too much uh, moving stuff around to actually manage to achieve it. Well, in your case, Dave, another answer as well is that dairy products tend to ruin most food groups. So uh, <laughs> well, there yeah. we go. Yes, yes. It's ironic, given that I'm absolute an absolute cheese fiend. <laughs> well, listen, Silverstone is just around the corner. We've got one more show before we start to talk about the British Grand Prix preview. Um, I was at Goodwood last weekend, as I mentioned. It was battered by the weather, um, but it still had like a, a sold-out crowd. Tickets were sold out for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. In the end, the event had to be cancelled on Saturday just because of weather warnings and, and severe winds. But when I was there on Friday, even though it was under a deluge of rain, there was a lot of people there. Um, a lot of fantastic motorcycles as well, right from, you know, 1920s Brooklyn style era races right up until, you know, recent 500cc two strokes. Um, a lot of Barry Machines old bikes as well, which, of course, you know, had a lot of curious onlookers through the mainly British crowd. I mean, fundamentally, it's a car event, but, you know, it seems that this uh, homage to motorsport, both sort of old and current, um, is really picking up speed when it comes to MotoGP. Dorna had an official MotoGP truck there, although curiously it wasn't really pushing anything to do with Silverstone, um, which which was kind of odd. We're talking one week after the Formula One British Grand Prix and three weeks ahead of the MotoGP. And you think that would be a major kind of um, sales pitch because people going to Goodwood, um, I wouldn't say they're lacking cash uh, for want of a, a more, you know, sort of 
couth generalization. Um, but you know, guys, if, if Dorna do give some validity to this event for a British market, and we all know they want to do more on that, they have TNT Sports, which used to be BT Sports as the TV broadcaster. We're missing really a big face in, in the premier class, even though there's been talk around Jake Dixon. It seems like he's going to miss out on a MotoGP saddle one way or another. Uh, you know, I just thought it was a positive move having five of the 11 um, MotoGP teams there, quite a few riders. I spoke to Paula Spargaro, um, you know, Casey Stone, of course, Brad Binder was there as well when I was there on Friday. So um, I don't know, from a distance, I don't know what you guys made of it. It was a car thing, so I ignored it completely. <laughs> I was on holiday, so I also ignored it completely. <laughs> I will read your Telegraph piece to add to uh, to get up to speed. Right, okay. Um well, listener, you know, we might ask Steve to completely edit the whole you know, <laughs> last piece of the podcast there. That's enough for this week. Don't forget to enjoy the World SBK Show with Steve and Gordo in the wake of Imola. And uh, we'll be back for another podcast next week. <laughs> <laughs>